0: What's going on everyone and welcome back to another episode of Along the Keel. In this episode of the podcast, we have Casey Davidson on, the founder of Toadfish, a brand dedicated to restoring oyster reefs while creating coastal lifestyle products that truly solve a problem. What is seemingly a pretty benign creature is actually one of the most important critters along our coastlines. The tasty bivalves are the filter feeders of our oceans and clean nearly 50 gallons of water per day. However human impacts have resulted in significant loss in oyster reefs, posing a massive threat to habitat, water quality, and coastal erosion. But due to the efforts made by companies like Toadfish, oyster reefs have begun to make their comeback. Growing up in a working class family of watermen, it's no surprise that founder Casey Davidson was accustomed to hard work. Born and raised in Beaufort, South Carolina, Casey spent most of his days exploring the mudflats, fishing, or catching crabs for a Sunday dinner. And after graduating college, Casey would go on to design some of the best fishing equipment with big name brands that he idolized in the fishing industry. But something was missing. At the time, coastal conservation wasn't a very strong trend in the fishing industry. And after leaving his corporate job, he then set out to create what would now become known as toadfish. So hustling farmer's markets on weekends and shucking thousands of oysters, it became apparent that the knives that he was using weren't holding up to the task. So after some redesigning, he had himself a better mousetrap and began selling knives out of his hatchback, which would then become Toadfish. In today's episode, I sit down with Casey, we get the backstory of how Toadfish came to be, what they're doing for conservation, and what he has planned for the future. There's so much to learn from Casey, so I'm gonna stop talking and get right to it. I hope you enjoy this episode of Along the Keel. What's happening? What's happening these days? Nothing Any much. Touched? Uh yeah, we
1: just did this Kickstarter for a new spinning reel that we launched. Um, oh, you did okay last week, and um, it just blew it out of the water. I'm stoked.
0: Awesome. What does that process look like? like
1: um, we had never what? done it. We had never done it before. Um, but basically, it's like the biggest project we've ever done from a tooling cost perspective. Mm-hmm. So it costs like grand a hundred grand to tool four sizes. Cause I built them from scratch. Like I designed all 125 pieces in this reel. Like it's, it's like my own deal. It's not like just going to some factory and just buying a reel. You know, I did, did all the, everything with it. Put, put, put the seals where I wanted it and built in a bunch of different things. And, um, but it was like a hundred grand. And wow. so, you know, it's kind of as for, smaller companies. That's a lot of cash for anybody really to have like out of your bank for a long period of time. So I was like, what should we, what can we do to kind of sell some of these things before, you know, they get here. And so we launched it and, um, just hit up all of our influencers and hit our email list. And, um, our goal was 30 grand and we raised 98,000 so far in like four days.
0: All right. So you already, you almost paid for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty cool to not have to advertise like or pay money for advertising. Just yeah, they just happens, have a big enough right? following where people are like, "Yeah, to, to like, I degree. want this toadfish I mean, reel." And the fact that they're willing to be like, "Here's 150 bucks out of my bank account," which I mean, like, I don't know if I would even do that, you know. And then I'm not going to get my product until like January, you know. Right. So it just shows that people just love the brand and um, love the products we're making. So it was exciting.
0: Well, it's a great, it's a great case, it's a great case study great case study then right i mean to to hear that your brand is so significant that people are willing to shell out money in advance for products that they're not going to get in 4 months you know
1: right now- yeah i was really blown away honestly like i didn't know how it was going to go and like i don't think companies like at our maturity level really like use kickstarter and so it was kind of an outside the box idea that i think more entrepreneurs might consider just for cash flow like consideration
0: right. Yeah.
1: And it was just a different way to like get some buzz around it, you know, some excitement, you know, get this before it hits the market, get the first ones that ever made, you know, to give our folks a chance to have it uh, because we know when we get it in, it's immediately going to sell out and it'll be scattered around to retailers all over the country and they may or may not get the opportunity to buy one.
0: Right. It kind of almost reminds me of like another form of social media then, to some degree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it I think it kind of was. It's just a platform. Um, that we could drive our our audience to, and their platform facilitated that whole like process of pre-buying and all that. Obviously, they take a little cut or whatever, but it still was uh, worth doing for sure.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Well, so then, you know, that's a great little segue into what pre one hundred thousand dollars out of the bank to make one single product would look like right? When the, when the beginnings of toadfish were just kind of on the cusp of coming up with the, this idea and it being born into what it is today. So Casey, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really excited to chat with you now with you kind of being from South Carolina and your family being from South Carolina, what is it meant to grow up along the coast there in? Cause you're in Beaufort, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I don't live in Beaufort right now. I live on James Island, which is right out of, um, Charleston South Carolina um but I did grow up in Beaufort um like you said I, my family's been there a long time I think I'm 14th generation so like you know 1700s type type of family um but you know not like like a bunch of like uh plantation rich folks like we were like the normal working folks yeah yeah and yeah. um so like growing up on the coast for me is just like a it's a big part of who I am and kind of how like I self identify you know who I am as a person really um you know growing up like I mean some of my best memories with with my father my grandfather my great-grandfather were on the water you know whether it be fishing or picking up oysters or um we have this neat thing in South Carolina where you can go out and throw the the cast net over over bait and shrimp uh Mm -hmm. that way which is really cool you know setting the crab pots and having a you know crab boil on my grandmother's dock or something like that for a Sunday dinner um or just you know getting pulled behind the boat on the knee board or um yeah I remember so many memories with me and my cousins were bored and we would just get our nets and walk out into the pluff mud that we have here and sinking up to our knees and we'd call it crab bogging where you'd run through at low tide and see if you could just scoop blue crabs up and put them in the bucket oh really Um, yeah so yeah I mean, so. Yeah, it's a huge part of who I am. And, um, you know, and that's really why I think I've kind of gotten to where I am and kind of doing what I'm doing, because just being involved in this, um, in this lifestyle, and this kind of special place and these yeah. saltwater ecosystems is, is really kind of who I am as a person, really.
0: Right. Do you think you were attracted, I mean, being, because... I think the one term that gets thrown around today is, you know, that being a waterman, right? Would you consider yourself a waterman? You know, someone that is really kind of all influenced by the coastline?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, probably more my my father and grandfathers and stuff like that, that actually like, you know, depended on that for their livelihood. Um, but, you so, know, bro, obviously yeah, like what, from a, like, a record, I'm very much a recreational person now, but like, yeah, I plan all my vacations, my family vacations around. Fishing, or you know, being out on the boat, and like when I was working in Columbia, South Carolina, which is kind of more mid-state, um, and I got my wife got pregnant with our first child, I immediately quit my job and said we're moving back to the coast because, you know, I want to raise my my daughter the way that I was brought up and teach her to throw a cast net and and do the things that I that I love and and uh, so yeah, definitely.
0: What do you think that teaches someone? You know, from a young age, right? Because there's a lot of different variables that have gone into. The creation of toadfish but you know there's a reason why you want to move back and have your daughter grow up the same way that you did not only from like a cultural and fun perspective but also just being like a good human being perspective
1: yeah i think there are a lot of values that uh, hunting and fishing bring that you can't really um teach any other way and i think it is a i mean i don't even think respect is a, a a strong enough word but it's an appreciation for for nature and and like what how that kind of guides you as you go through life like understanding you know your impact as a human and what you want to do with your life um kind of more those you know those end goals versus kind of means goals mm.
0: yeah no I, you know I, so
1: for like 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 an example like kind of a a weird example you know you're you're out in the dove field as a kid and you know you shoot a do- you know a bird you're not supposed to shoot you know and you understand like wow like i took the life of this animal for for no reason i got no benefit from this you know and i'm very much like a huge catch and release guy, obviously toadfishes, let's put them back, but I love to keep a trout every once in a while or redfish and mm-hmm. show my daughter, Hey, like we caught the speckled trout, but now watch, we're going to clean it. You know, we're going to go through the whole process. We're going to cook it and look what this did, you know, for us. Um, and so that that's important, I think. And I don't think you can really teach that. Like, um, you know, just kids growing up other places and not really, understanding that connection
0: yeah totally i mean there's something to be said about going out and catching your own food and, and, and eating it and sharing it with other people that it really is something that you have to experience rather than just i don't know see it watch it right you mm-hmm. got to do it yeah and definitely now animal you know i got a tatag behind me and i constantly talk about the dog on the podcast for some reason but it's a you know it's one of my favorite fish to eat but yet they're so they're so hard to catch you know in a lot of ways like you got to have the right touch you got to have you got to kind of earn it right and mm-hmm. at the end of the day you get to bring it home and share it with people so I think it's definitely a character building um, to be able to grow up by the coast and and live on the water and not only that but you know, a lot of times you get put in these situations that you wouldn't otherwise be put in. Like I'm sure you and your buddies going out on the boat, there's got to have been a time where you're like, oh crap, don't tell dad this or, or, you know, quick wash the boat down. Cause there's a ton of mud over it or something like that. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And just situations you get in on the water that are, that are dangerous and a healthy respect for, for those situations, I think is, is good life lessons as well.
0: Yeah. You got to keep, you got to, um, you got to trot the line right on, on, uh, danger and not danger. And the ocean is a good teacher of that. So from, from your point of, you know, growing up on the water and being involved in the ocean, was that something that you think that was largely just placed on you because your, your father and grandfather were both watermen themselves, or was this something that you kind of earned on your own as well?
1: Um I mean I'm definitely lucky to have grown up the way that I did. I mean like even my great uncle, he was a shrimp boat captain in Beaufort and uh you know in the summertime times getting to go out with him and and work on that boat when I was 11 12 years old, staying out overnight and sorting everything and getting a chance to throw a mm-hmm. line over and catch a huge shark off the side or um just it, it just gets you excited about the world and makes you realize how how much out there there is, you know, when you're in the middle of the ocean and you're like wow, I'm 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 a small part of this universe, but also kind of connected. Um and so yeah, I mean I guess I was lucky to to get to experience those things and I don't know if my daughters will get to experience all the things that I did, but I think um I'm ha- happy that I that I did and it definitely has made me who I am for sure.
0: Yeah. And and then going from growing up you going into the world of, okay, now we got to go get like a career and we can't just play on the water all day, obviously, right? Right, right, you know, right, right. You've created a business that kind of allows you to, in some ways, do that. Um, what was the next, what was the step, right? Because know you went to school um, and then from there, you, you know, did some design stuff. So, you know, where were you going and where was your head at as you kind of were like, huh, what do I want to do? Like, how do I want to figure this out?
1: So I think the biggest step was and again this is something that my kids will never get to experience but it was like doing what i talked about working on the shrimp boat but then also like my dad was a home builder so like mm-hmm. growing up in the summers from the time i can remember you know i'm out driving nails and laying shingles and this 90 degree heat and i don't know if you've ever been down this, this far south but the humidity it's like 100 percent humidity and it's pretty brutal work and so i knew at an early age that i didn't want to do that the rest of my life um, so my brother and I were the first two in our family to go to college and um when I was there, I really just tried to like discover things that had never been you know I really cherished college because it was no one in my family had ever went, and it was neat doing like a liberal arts thing where I could really just immerse myself and and learn different things and um mm-hmm. I eventually came back to the conservation side is really where I was interested um so I did some internships with the Coastal Conservation Association in South Carolina and through that was able to um, just learn about that arena. And um, I wanted to be an environmental um, attorney, but kind of the more I learned about that, it just didn't seem like it was going to be a great fit for me. Um, and so yeah, that just I- set. what's
0: that? Like, why was that not a good fit? Why do you think that wouldn't have been a good fit for you? It
1: seemed, it seemed daunting. It seemed like you can just spend a lifetime doing that and never make an actual impact on anything where you, and, and also to make a decent living, you end up from what I understand litigating for the polluters and, and not the opposite. The opposite is I think kind of more of a nonprofit type of work, but I, I really didn't get that far into it other than like taking my LSAT and doing stuff like that. But um. I got I uh found out that there was a fishing tackle company making fishing rods and reels in Columbia called Shakespeare Fishing Tackle. Um and uh I just beat the door down until they let me in. I, I, I went to my interview for a product manager job um and had a whole notebook full of hand sketches on ways to make their products better that I'd mm-hmm. been using my whole my whole life and um got the opportunity to get in there and that's kinda where took me for a whole career in kind of the, the corporate world designing fishing rods and reels. I got a chance to manage, um, Fenwick, which was a really cool old rod brand. You're probably familiar with really fun brand, uh, Fluger Pfluger reels, designing a bunch of Pfluger reels. And then, um, eventually I left there and went and worked for Shimano for a, a short time, about a year doing their product development as well. So that's kind of been my, my
0: past. Yeah. And now was that something that you did as a kid? Like, Were you someone that was always interested into engineering, designing, figuring out the way things work? Like, there's got to be some sort of catalyst that was like, "All right, I like the ocean, I like the water, you know, I like being on the water. How can I kind of bring these things together?" But there's also that, like, there's that knack, right? There's that almost like a talent, if you will, of Casey's good at designing stuff. Like, when did you figure out that you were that kind of guy?
1: Well, I always loved to be creative, and I just never thought that I could have a career where i could be creative um like as a kid i was an artist i'd love to sketch and draw and i'd go sit places and 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 paint like you know landscapes and stuff like that but i mean i was pretty practical too i was like you know i gotta gotta make a living as well so um i kind of always have liked that side but i never really had i didn't go to school for it because i just didn't think it was a like a feasible path to make money i guess or you know, or whatever society told me I needed to do. Um, But it was pretty neat that I kind of stumbled into something where I got to be creative, got to fish all over the country um, and make products that I was passionate about. Um, Cause I just remember like as a kid, like saving up 30 bucks so that I could buy my first ugly stick and stuff like that. I mean, it was pretty awesome to work on those brands that I really like idolized as a kid. Um, Mm. But through that whole kind of pathway, kind of the toadfish, Is I I really was frustrated with, uh, you know, they're all great companies, but I just didn't feel like there was anyone in that industry that was taking a stance on conservation and um, putting at the forefront of their messaging or really kind of just putting their money where their mouth was to kind of ensure any type of sustainability within, you know, what those products are being sold for, which you know, obviously mm-hmm. you have to have a, a very good fishery in order to continue to sell fishing rods and reels and line and bait, et cetera. But it just didn't seem right. like anybody was really talking about it or um, or making it a big part of kind of who they were from a core value perspective.
0: Why and do you, so, think that, uh, you think companies have kind of gone through that process with kind of disregarding the very things that we need to actually maintain a healthy fishery?
1: I don't know. I mean i remember talking to some ceos and uh of those companies and of uh, different companies um again i i, I don't want to talk trash about anybody they're great companies and great great people I, I love my journey there and i just remember you know folks being like hey well we pay so much in excise tax you know look at all these taxes we're paying and you know so so maybe they're just think that they're doing enough or um you know they're doing what's required um mm-hmm i i just uh I just saw that as a kind of a gap in and thought and and uh in terms of how to build a, a business the way that I wanted to build one
0: right right yeah i think it seems as though a lot of companies you know and now it's kind of changing as the conservation becomes a little bit more in i guess kinda of trend as well yeah, yeah. right yeah. um but it almost seems as though it's like okay yeah, well we pay our taxes like that's like the standard right and and doing the bare minimum or doing the standard really doesn't help anyone, right? You got to go mm-hmm. above and beyond. And someone like you, like, you know, taking your design work and and, and transferring that into creating Toadfish, um, obviously, you know, raises the bar significantly. So with your time, you know, working with Shimano, CCA, and all these other companies, at what point were you like, you know what, I know how to do this, and I know, I bet I can do it better. So how do I go do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was when I got um, let go from Shimano. I just said, man, like, I know I can do this. I, I know how to design great products that people like. And mm-hmm. I, I've always, I, I had always had the idea for Toadfish, really, since I was in high school. We used to, um, my brother and I used to make fun of all the kids that would wear the, the redfish belts and all the like. marlin Marlin hats and stuff like that because we were just like man these guys are like such posers we're gonna make a uh like a toadfish belt you know and wear that just because we thought it was a hilarious fish that you would only really know about like if you you know actually fished a little bit um so we thought it was i thought it was just kind of a funny concept and then do when i was working at cca i really kind of learned more about like the real reasons for fish mortality. Um, the number one reason for fish mortality is water quality and mm-hmm. you would think it was over harvesting or gill netting or, you know, a list of 50 other things that problems that, that our fisheries face, but, but really it's water quality. And, um, again, like I talked about with me an environmental attorney, I didn't think that I could have an impact on stopping pollution or stopping polluters. Um, you know, more and more people move to the coast. Uh, more, more things are manufactured and and produced, or whatever is causing you know runoff. For, you know, you name it. You know, everything flows downstream. Mm-hmm. So, what are what is something that I can actually make an impact on? And and through CCA, through my mentor Scott Whitaker, there, who's still the director for South Carolina, he he, he really kind of brought me that. And then I started researching. and I said, well, wow, this the oyster is the answer. It, it has to be. Um, so that's how I kind of discovered that piece. And then I just married that with this cool creature whose scientific name is actually the oyster toadfish. And I was like, what better mascot to be kind of a, um, yeah, a mascot for oyster restoration and water quality than, than the, uh, the nasty old oyster toadfish. So
0: <laughs> it's funny. I like, kind of,
1: I, I kind of knew that I wanted a brand around oyster restoration and conservation before I knew what the brand was, and before I knew what products we were gonna make. um I just knew that that was something that I wanted to. You know, it was
0: a conscious, yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was like, "That's what I want to do with my life. I just want to kind of figure out a way to replant oyster beds."
0: Right. You know, it's funny you bring up the the toadfish and right. It's kind of a on its surface is kind of like an ugly looking fish it's funky looking like there's it's got fins in places that you wouldn't normally think it would have and you know it's kind of a funny color but it's a cool fish like you pick one up and you're like man this is kind of a neat organism right similar mm. to a um you know like a not a dogfish uh, a sea robin i don't know if you guys yeah you guys have yeah, yeah we don't have those here but yeah i'm familiar yeah so like you know they bark at you if they if you come out of the water they got like Mm-hmm. They also look like spiders, and you know, Tatog are pretty ugly-looking fish. But they represent, you know, kind of like I feel like this hardy animal, right? Hardy like an oyster, and an oyster has so many different, you know, ecosystem services that it provides that it really is like that ultimate filter feeder, that ultimate. Um, if you were going to represent conservation with that one animal like the oyster would probably be it. So,
1: yeah, it's the centerpiece of of most of the ecosystems mm-hmm. uh or saltwater ecosystems um in our country, you know, it's it's the coral reef of the United States. Um but not a lot of folks know that and they don't know kind of the situations that those habitats are in and they have no idea that the snapper and grouper even that you catch offshore grow up no. inshore on oyster beds. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the centerpiece of the whole equation. And, um, you know, like in our state, we probably have some of the best oyster populations probably in the world still. Hmm. Um, but we harvest 150,000 bushels a year and we restock close to 40,000 bushels. Wow. And they take, they take about two years to grow. So, I mean, if you model that out, um, over whatever period of time i mean you can you can kind of do the math
0: yeah now is that when you guys say harvest are you harvesting like wild caught oyster i know that sounds kind of stupid but there's no no no. it is
1: it's wild yeah it's wild native um we call them clusters or Mm -hmm. you know native clusters for we have oyster roast down here um Mm -hmm. and they're harvested commercially and recreationally um, whereas like probably up, up your way it's mostly just aquaculture, which is, you know, putting the putting the seeds, uh, oysters in the cages and then mm-hmm. harvesting those and, and that's actually kind of a new thing down this way. But every state that we've donated to that had that has a good strong aquaculture background as well is seeing recovery on their native beds because it's taking helping take some of the strain off of the native populations. So those two kind of can go hand in hand. Eating sustainably grown oysters that are grown in cages is actually the only food that that I know of where the more of them you eat and the more of them you grow, it actually has a positive impact on the environment because they're being grown from spat, from microorganisms, which is completely sustainable. And then while they're growing, they're filtering the water. And then if you take it a step farther and you recycle those shells back onto the native beds, Um, you could be regrowing wild populations with the shells that you grew. So, I mean, think about like that versus eating a steak There's really where nothing you're, bad you about- know, <laughs> no, no, but we still have legislators that down here Our our aquaculture farming is always under fire from different legislative people because they don't want cages in front of their million dollar docks. you know?
0: Yeah, that's usually the, uh, that's the limiting factor, right. Is that whole ideology behind like tourism and, you know, looking at them. But in my opinion, like people want to go see oysters. Like they come to, you know, Rhode Island, for example, and my buddy does oyster farm tours at his farm, you know, and it explains Mm -hmm. to him the whole, we'll find it really cool, but it's those very select few that have a lot of money that can put towards, you know, not having them in front of their, in in front of their house or whatnot. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, but so to kind of go back to this idea of you creating Toadfish, eventually you decided that you know Shimano wasn't your thing. You you move on, and then you start selling these oyster knives, right? And you start selling these oyster knives that are a little bit different. Can you tell me about like how you went about designing those, and like why the oyster knife? Obviously, it plays into kind of the Toadfish and the oysters, but you know you could have picked some of the other products that you currently have but the oyster knife seemed like just such a perfect fit
1: yeah I started with the oyster knife because really the whole idea was an oyster knife that replanted oyster beds and Mm -hmm. I knew that locally I could get some some buy-in there Um, and so obviously I told you about my family and what they do but we have some aquaculture as well as they pick you know native oysters down in the river i grew up on the on the well branch we've had those leases in our family for you know 100 years or whatever Mm -hmm. but um i would go down um get oysters from my cousins for 50 cents for a single and then on the i would shuck them for a dollar at the farmer's market and that's how that's how i that's how i would make my money on the weekends um well really for the for the week um and when I started doing that, I, I really actually started with t shirts and hats. And I would I would did this oyster, you know, shucking. I would shuck the oysters and sell the t shirts and the hats and talk to people about, hey, it's important to recycle your shells and have signs up, you know, and it was cool because like a lot of folks down here are tourists or have just moved down, you know, not generations of people and they're like, oh yeah, I have oysters all the time. I'm supposed to put those shells back in these drop ins that then get put back in the water. And it was kind of a really cool experience to like hear you know, and, and talk to people on that kind of one-on-one basis. Um, but yeah, then I, as I did it, I was like, man, these knives really suck. Like I cannot find an oyster knife that will hold up for two Saturdays, you know, cause I was chucking 800 to a thousand oysters a weekend, <laughs> which is, <laughs> and so I was just going through knives and I was like, yeah, my, my engineering brain, you know, um, started just going nuts and I was sketching and figuring out like the optimal angle that, the 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 tip of the knife should be bent to get into the shell. And then what pivot point when you turn, like you turn the key to a car to, to shuck an oyster, like what that is and what the ergonomics should be with, with your thumb on top. And so I built this kind of inset for your thumb and um, making it full tang so that, you know, you weren't getting some of the breakage issues that I was having on some of the other knives. And um, so, yeah, I built a little bit better mousetrap and then I, um, you know, built a nice, I would go out and collect driftwood and, cut that up and make these little in-store displays where you could stick the knives down in the little piece of driftwood with a little placard I'd drill on there. It says, you know, um, we're replanting oyster beds with every oyster knife sold. And during the week I would drive around kind of old school style. Like I don't think it was map quest, but it was like, just like kind of like that Google maps or whatever, where you, I would just map out my route on these little independent retailers. And I would just get at a little Suzuki hatchback and I would just drive around and, (laughs) <laughs> try to sell sell them a dozen at a time you know out of the back of my car um and that's what i did um and my first year doing that i did like three hundred thousand dollars in sales my first year so i really knew that i was kind of wow. one to, on to yeah. something but i mean but i was hustling <laughs>
0: But 300 yeah. grand in, in the first year, whereas most businesses are, you know, they're not making anything, right? It's just like, we're just going to break even and call it quits. We're not quits, but break even. And then next year, we're going to make some more money. So with that, yeah. I mean, it must have given you a whole bunch of confidence to be like, okay, I got something here. And, and at what point were you like, all right, well, what's next?
1: Yeah, so... I've never taken a dollar out of this company. I always just roll anything we make right into new products and, and into marketing and into growth. Um, so from there I was like, wow, I solved this oyster knife problem. Let's go solve the, the shrimp problem. And obviously, you know, I had been around shrimp my entire life and had watched my grandmother peeling shrimp with this old red plastic shrimp devener that cost $3 retail. And I'm like, I'm going to redesign that thing. And I did that. <laughs> and, um, built the Frogmore shrimp cleaner, which was my second product. Um, and I was peeling shrimp one day at a, at a farmer's market and I was peeling them and then cooking them in like a little cast iron skillet. Um, Mm -hmm. and just doing that. And, um, this guy came by from garden and gun magazine and he ended up doing like a little, you know, write up on me about it. And, uh, it just went bonkers from there. I mean, I think I, I sold out of every shrimp cleaner I had and it just kind of like, just took off from there and just kept parlaying the money into new things. And then next I went after crabs and I'd redesigned a, a crab cracker, but it actually is a crab cutter. It cuts perfect circles around crab claws instead okay. of mashing them. It's spring loaded and has little teeth. Um, I've, I have a patent on all these products too. I'd design and patent stuff and then take it to market. Um, and so I've just been solving problems basically. So like, I think the best products are ones that um, come from a place of authenticity, but also like you can tell that, Hey, this takes what I used to have and, and makes it better and actually solves like a problem or enhances something that I used to do. And the other Mm -hmm. success I've had with the products is they're not like completely new things that you have to explain what the product is to someone, you know, like, yeah. an oyster knife that, that, shucks oysters better a shrimp cleaner that i put a little blade a little sharp blade on the underside that butterflies so it it devanes and butterflies at the same time as you oh, peel wow. it so it took us yeah. took a step out you know the crab cracker doesn't smash the shells to bits and i never could get into stone claws either because there's you know you have to get a mallet and you end up just destroying mm-hmm. this beautiful thing so it it cuts it uh and then you know i was tired of spilling beers on my boat all the time uh because i didn't have any cup holders so Solve that problem, you know. I I started tinkering around with unidirectional suction and and figured out a way to make a a koozie that that didn't fall over, but you also could pick up very easily <laughs> to drink. Um, yeah, you know, just
0: there is. I was tinkering around with unidirectional suction. Like <laughs> that sentence of in itself, it just sounds. This whole time I'm listening, it sounds like you went into like your grandmother's kitchen who probably has like this old, older beach house, right? Cause you, your grandfather was an oyster. (laughs) And like go into her, her kitchen drawers, like empty everything out on the table and just says like, all right, what can I make better? You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. To be be honest, like, like, uh, the best (laughs) part, the the best product I've ever designed actually is our fish bachelor. And it sounds crazy. Uh, I would encourage, I'm going to send you one just so you can try it. Cause like you can't even put your, like your finger on why, or or how good it is until you actually use it. Um, but it's like this perfect uh flexible tip and I like single taper sharpen the end so you can get under any piece of delicate fish that you ever want to get under. I can flip eggs in a cast iron with this thing. And uh but like again, that was the same thing. Yeah, it's all this little short fish spatula that have been around forever. I'm like, I'm gonna make a size that I can use on the grill. And a built-in, a built-in spoon rest, so it sits up off the ground. So when I fry fish, I don't have to have a spoon rest, and the grease getting on the ground. But it's like little things. And you know, if you if you told me that we'd be selling like three thousand fish spatulas a month, I would have told you that you're crazy because <laughs> I was, you know, this like in, actually, right? insane that you can sell, you know, a, a high end for that market, like twenty eight dollars spatulas, like the right. highest price point probably spatula that there is out there. I don't I don't know any any more that are higher than that but right um so but yeah it's just a better it. design yeah and and uh but yeah and it's just stuff i like like i love to cook i love to eat i love to entertain um i love to drink beer and and i like to go fishing and so i'm just designing stuff that i that i enjoy and um it seems like folks really really like it so i'm yeah. having the I mean, time i'm having the time of my life for sure
0: <laughs> it sounds like it just sounds like you're just kind of messing around and having fun and i mean and at the end of the day creating this really unique brand that not only you know allows people to have a great product but you're also helping restore and conserve you know the areas that you know and love but i'm i'm curious like if we take it a step back you go through your design process and yeah it's something that you know that you love and that you're kind of taking this experience you want to make it better and you're you're building a tool that already exists but in terms of like the actual functionality of it you know, like you talk about the spatula and you're talking about you making it a little bit tapered at the end and that whole process, are you doing this? Like you draw these things out first, you go to a CAD software, like walk me through that process. I'm curious.
1: Yeah. I I start with hand sketches. Um, and then, and then I put that, um, into like a digital rendering. Um, and then from there I, I start on the 3d, um, and the really, but really the, where the rubber meets the road is the 3d printing process. So like, I've learned a lot about that because I'm a self-taught designer. Um, you know, I didn't go to school for any of this stuff and I've had a lot of help and coaching along the way and a lot of people helping me. But um, I found a, a really good 3d printer. That's like a third party. Cause I used to kind of do them in house, but with like cheaper mm-hmm. prints. And I found a really good 3d print um, that makes this kind of like a waxy material. I don't even know what kind of material it is to be honest. I'm just a old redneck from Beaufort, but, uh, (laughs) um, it, uh, it really shows like what it's going to feel like and how it's going to function from that. And then, um, and then I use like an engineering team over at the factories that we're using to help kind of push prototypes. But I mean, any product will have, you know, upwards to 10 to 15 different 3d prints and then three to four different, um, prototypes and then lots of testing. And so like a product usually has, usually takes almost a a year to take a product from concept to the market. Um, You know, and then sometimes when you go to market, you still have to do little revisions and, and we kind of constantly improve products as they're even out there from, you know, if we're getting feedback from consumers in a different way, like we, we make adjustments and um, it'd be invisible to the consumer. Um, But yeah, we're constantly like have our finger on the pulse of, of what's what people are talking about, what comments they have on social media. And, Honestly, that's where a lot of our new product ideas come from now is, is when we mm-hmm. see people asking for different, different things. Yeah. Um, so well, it
0: seems so, though. so I knew you guys had the spatula. I knew you guys had those types of products, right? But there's one product in particular that I can just remember seeing and being like, Oh wow, what are these guys? You know what I mean? Like it almost felt like you're kind of not a flagship if you would, but if like something that kind of blew things out of the water and really got people to see what you were doing it was the the whole unidirectional as you say yeah
1: the yeah the non-tipping can cooler for sure Yeah,
0: exactly so with that product it seems as though you went from making really cool innovative you know kitchen tools around the coast to building this thing right and 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 was that really like the the the, I guess the blowout of how things really kicked off and in
1: yeah 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 for sure I mean that was the first product Besides the shrimp cleaner, obviously that's a more niche market. But yeah, that the can cooler when we launched that, um, we just created some great content around it, and it's one of those products that's really fun to like share uh, your content with. So a lot of user generated content came out of us getting those in the market, and you know we had a couple videos that had thirty to sixty million views over just like Holy one God. one summer. Um, I mean, it went absolutely bonkers um and yeah it definitely put us on the map and that that was huge for us cuz then we were able to go out and do you know at any point i have 30 different ideas uh that i'm working on from a product development perspective mm-hmm. i really love designing products i really don't like running a company like i i like being a ceo i guess but like it's not it's fun I and mean, we have a really fun time and fun culture but you know having 25 employees and and all the things that that we have like i never kind of imagined it like I've never had any experience like kind of dealing with all those types of things Mm -hmm. um but the can cooler allowed me to say okay cool now I can go do this awesome folding fillet knife that that I've had that idea for that has a clip built in and this collapsible cutting board that that folds in and out like an accordion that's magnetized and I can so I can create this system to put in my little boat box and not have Mm -hmm. to take a big cutting way I mean all the it's it's definitely allowed us the opportunity to to, to scale, um, Mm. and get the resources that, that we need to open time up for me to, to do what I love, which is develop new products. So I was really blessed that, um, that that product did so well and people, and people really liked it. So,
0: Mm. so you being the designer, you know, type and you you really enjoying that aspect of it, there's this whole brand side and this brand component where you really kind of create this community, which you guys have. Has there been any challenges of like you trying to kind of bridge the gap between what you really love doing versus the day to day of like, oh, no, HR you know issue or, or you know, crap, I got to do this or tell me like a little bit about that, because in a way you're kind of bridging the gap from what you love to something that you got to figure out because it's necessary to do so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say for any entrepreneur, I mean, it's, it's all about the it's about the who. So you just have to surround your people, yourself with the right people and people that you really trust. And I've been really fortunate that some of my best friends that I grew up with are really talented in different areas. Um, mm-hmm. So my CMO and my COO are guys that I've known since I was four years old. And they've been able to take a lot off my plate and um, uh, you know execute a lot of the things that, that I didn't know. But also like, just ask. Like, reach into your Rolodex and at, start asking people for help and you'd be amazed at how many people genuinely just want you to succeed and, and they're willing to offer their time or their, their knowledge to be able to, to figure things out. You know what I mean? Like how, how, what's the best way to do fulfillment? What's the best way to do importing and all these other forecasting, you know, things that that weren't in my wheelhouse. Um, you know, I th- I think building a brand and, um, marketing and product. That's like the fun stuff that I love doing. Um, and I'm good at, but all the other things I've just had to find the right people to do the, the right things. Um, and just don't be greedy. Just, just, you know, pay people what they're worth and create a culture that, that, um, just you get buy-in from everybody and, um, just build a business the way that, that you want to, and, and that, that a business that you would want to work for. Um, so that, that'd be my kind of advice for anybody there.
0: Yeah. And, and with this idea of building that community, you guys have done such a great job of kind of spreading you. of just, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, out into the ecosystem, right? So kind of giving back to, oyster restoration and creating these pipelines for people to kind of go to and say okay toadfish like they're putting where they're they're putting their money where their mouth is because you know like what we spoke about earlier unlike the co- the companies that were just kind of relying on other outside sources to to keep you know the ecosystem alive you're actually going out there and doing that you know your your boots on the ground approach so what are yeah things i mean we're we're a, done because we- i know we spoke
1: yeah, we're a small company, um, but we just hit half a million in giving, which we're really proud of. We've done projects in eight coastal states now, and really that's kind of how we measure our business is how much we can, can how much we're able to give. Um, you know and uh, our goal is to to hopefully do projects in every coastal state um, in the country and, and um, you know make a difference for generations to come where you know, we can have these beds, these orchard beds in protected areas that are going to be there forever uh, filtering the water. So like, that's our, that's our goal. And, And that's really, that's really what I want to look back on my life and kind of be proud of. I mean, yeah, like, it's cool. We're selling a bunch of, you know, koozies and stuff, but like, is that really how I want to measure my life? Probably not.
0: Yeah. Have that legacy approach. And in a lot of ways, it seems as though, you know, you're growing up with your grandfather and your father being kind of those watermen, this is kind of your version of that, right? You didn't go off and do finance. You didn't go off and do something else. You went off and you, you're giving back to, you know, your, your community that you started with. I mean, it seems yeah. like it. No. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: No, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's why I get out of bed every day. It's, it's exciting.
0: Yeah. yeah, for sure. So now as you kind of continue to develop Toadfish and you continue to kind of develop where your brand wants to go, where do you see Toadfish going like, New products new I guess new approach to conservation, like how do you see it growing
1: so on the product side, um, and we've got some unbelievable ideas that we're working on that i i can't wait to to share with the world. Um, I see us kind of sticking to what what we're doing from a product category perspective i mean we're definitely going to continue to innovate the coastal kitchen um, innovate um, you know, on the water experiences, mm-hmm. um, whether, you know, whether that be fishing or, or boating. Um, and you know, we may dabble in some camping or some things that, you know, that we also like. Um, <laughs> but I don't think we'll be any farther departures from where we are. They're yep. just a lot of really cool, exciting ideas that you'll see over the next couple of years. Um, and then from a philanthropy perspective, one of my biggest goals, um, and selfishly for, for South Carolina. Um, right now I'm really trying to work on a a statewide oyster shell recycling program. Mm -hmm. So like in our state, we have over 300 restaurants that, that shuck oysters. Um, but all those oysters end up in the landfill. So about 90,000 bushels of shell end up in the landfill in our state every year. So I'd like to try, I'm trying to put together a program, um, and maybe might involve some legislation to fund it long-term, but have trucks and trailers that rode around and picked up these shells on a daily basis and got them back here to the coast to be able to use for restocking purposes. And if we are able to get a program like that off the ground and show success, I really think that that could be a model that could be, you know, scaled and people would say, Hey, look what South Carolina's doing. You know, I'm North Carolina or Georgia or Florida or Texas or Alabama. Hey, like we can do this too. Um, yeah. and so that's kind of my, um, probably five year goal is to create this statewide oyster shell recycling program in South Carolina.
0: Love it. Love it. Well, Casey, Hey, you know, I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, um, you know, being able to tell me all about toadfish outfitters and what you guys are got going on over there. Where can people learn more about you get in touch, get involved? Um, you know, obviously Facebook, Instagram, but where else can people, uh, get to know the community better?
1: Yeah, I mean Toadfish.com. We're just about to uh, launch a new site that's pretty interactive. Um, we also have our own nonprofit that we've um, spawned off of Toadfish to kind of formalize our giving and allow our community to also donate extra, you know, with their purchases. Um, so that's the Toadfish Conservation Coalition. You can look that up as well. And you know, if you're interested in giving to the oyster restoration, that's a, a good platform. Our nonprofit um, gives 100% of all proceeds. Um, we have no overhead, it's just volunteers. So that'd be a good place for you to check out as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Casey, thanks for the thanks for the time today and uh we'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys for tuning into to another episode of Along the Keel. It was a pleasure having Casey on the show today and learning all about how toadfish came to be, the conservation efforts they're doing, as well as where it's going into the future, and quite frankly, how he comes up with all these different products. It's pretty amazing if you ask me. If you guys want to learn more about toadfish, head on over to our website, read the article, listen to this podcast, share it with a friend. And if you want to be able to check out some awesome, great gear for your next coastal adventure, Go on alongthekeel.com. We've got a ton of great stuff over there. Sign up for our newsletter for updates. Check us out on social media. Give us a like, share, and a follow. And if you want to get 10% off your next purchase at alongthekeel.com, all you got to do is send us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a screenshot. Email it to me at zach at alongthekeel.com, and we'll give you a custom code for your next order on Along the Keel. With that, I hope you guys always work hard, do good, be incredible, and have an awesome day.